Hello and welcome to The Interview, a podcast that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and this week my guest is Olivia Nutzi. Olivia is the Washington correspondent for New York Magazine, and she has a knack for capturing the distinct weirdness of the Trump era better than almost any other reporter. Her dispatches on Trump world figures like Rudy Giuliani and Hope Hicks have been must-reads for understanding the last four years. I called up Olivia Nutzi on Thursday, after Trump had left for Mar-a-Lago, to get her perspective on what's next for Trump, his adult children, and the many characters that defined his administration. We also spoke about the Biden inauguration, which she attended, and how she plans to cover the new administration. Olivia Nutzi is the Washington correspondent for New York Magazine. Olivia, thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing well. I, uh, it's, it, there's been a, a new sense of calm that I think has washed over a lot of people that work in news. <laughs> you think so? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what it's related to, but it might have something to do with the, the president for the last four years getting snuffed out on Twitter and now moving down to Florida. Maybe. I feel like maybe it's just me, but I feel like there's more like anxiety about that than anything. Really? What, what makes you anxious about that? Yeah. I, well, it, it, we had total clarity about what the story was before. Mm-hmm. Now we have choice. <laughs> and I think that um, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's maybe it's just, I feel like we have less um, direction about what we are covering every day um, now that our assignment editor has been booted from the internet and he's um, been, you know, sent down to Florida. I, I will say as the editor of a news outlet, there was something incredibly easy about the fact that you would wake up at six in the morning and Trump will have tweeted what everyone was going to be talking about for the rest of the day. And yeah. it didn't have anything. It, it, it didn't have anything to do with what anyone thought it would be. You know, occasionally it would be about North Korea and then sometimes it would be about, you know, Morning Joe. Um, but it was it really was an assignment editor every day for four years. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because that was true a lot, but it was also true that oftentimes we he would be tweeting so much on any given morning mm-hmm. that it was like we all we didn't actually read them all or take them seriously anymore. He's the boy who cried wolf. And like there, it got to a point in the administration where even though he still obviously had the ability to dictate news cycles via t- via tweet where. um where even White House officials that I talked to sometimes wouldn't either wouldn't be able to keep up with what he was saying on Twitter or like had given up on reading the daily morning flurry of tweets. And I certainly did too. Like I, at a certain point I put my phone on silent and I still haven't put it back on. <laughs> like I, if you call me, there's always a chance that I will miss it since like 2018 because I, I had to just shut the sound off because I couldn't deal with it anymore. That sounds delightful, to be honest, shutting it off completely. I, uh, but yeah, I agree, though. I mean, I, I remember at the beginning of the Trump presidency, when he first had the tweet that was about uh, Mika Brzezinski bleeding badly from a facelift. And <laughs> that was like the craziest thing anyone had ever seen, that a president was tweeting about something like that. And you it know, was like it was the news cycle for like a week. You and know, then- I've never I've never told this story, but so I was in the middle of um I was in the middle of working on a profile of Joe and Mika um at the time. time. And I was dealing a lot with the White House and trying to get the president to participate. And in in it could only be true of the Trump 
presidency, the president was taking seriously um, the request to participate on the record um, in this Amazing. profile of Joan Amazing. Mika. And it, it was like, like any um, media or palace intrigue story, like everyone came out of the woodwork to talk for that story in the Trump White House, because that's like the thing that Trump cared most about was a petty media fight. Um, and that morning I woke up and I had a text from a, a very senior White House official being like, well, the president just tweeted your hook or something like that. It was like, um, or the, you know, the president's um, weighed in for your story or so, something like phrased like that in a kind of a vague way. And I was like, what? And then I looked at Twitter and I saw that he had, he had sent that. And I was like, oh my fucking God, like, did he send this because... <laughs> Because he heard you, that they were going to be on the cover of a magazine, like or you what? Are confessing to being responsible for the <laughs> <laughs> facelift tweet. Uh, uh, maybe, <laughs> yeah. I it's it's been a weird, it's a very weird time in the last few years. I, that reminds me of something you said. I think it was in the recent L piece uh, where they spoke to women reporters who had covered the Trump administration, and you said how strange it was. Uh, to see senior administration officials who are all involved in some sort of historic uh, moment in the Trump presidency turn around and rush to comment on some palace intrigue story because gossip was really the most important thing to them being in the Trump administration. Um, and and not just really to them, but like, to the president, yeah. right? Yeah. Like the most important thing to the president of the United States was gossip. And if you wanted the White House to participate in something, really all that you would have to do, I learned, was kind of send, um, I would send an email knowing that it would be circulated widely and probably printed out and, and maybe given to the president in a printed out form, um, where I would just list in like bullet points everything that I wanted to ask about or anything that I had heard or been told that I wanted to ask about. And it would just result in like everybody mobilizing to try and shape your story and i imagine that changed to a great extent at the end of the trump presidency because the administration really emptied out quite quickly after his election loss and you know i'm excited to have you on today because i feel like your reporting always does a good job of capturing the bizarre stuff that's going on behind the scenes of the white house and the end of this administration was certainly odd in the sense that most staffers had already left the president had a rather low-key farewell speech from the tarmac at Joint Base Andrews on Wednesday before jetting off to his resort in Florida. Now that it's all over, do you have any sense of what the mood is like for the president and the White House staffers that stuck it out into the bitter end? I, well, the fact that his inner circle um, contracted as it did in the final weeks made it pretty difficult for me anyway um, to report in a responsible way on how he was feeling, right? Like people are always eager to to take a stab at how they think he might be feeling. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of people actually around him, I mean, the group just grew so small. Um, it was sort of an extreme version of what we had experienced periodically over the four year period where in the beginning, it was just an extremely crowded, busy place with all of these people who hated each other, hated themselves, hated him, eager to spend all of their time um, trying to knife each other in the press with leaks or to knife him. And that was from a reporting perspective, fucking great. Like that's what you 
that's the best scenario that you can hope for um, if you're writing about palace intrigue. Um, and then I think it was maybe when John Kelly first came on as the chief of staff, all of a sudden meetings got smaller, people were fired, there were fewer people in the West Wing um, and fewer people in meetings meant that there was less possible deniability about leaks. And so the leaking, not that it ever stopped, but it it just grew less frequent, less dramatic. Um, And that happened at different points throughout the administration. And then in the final weeks, or really, I would say beginning right on election night, beginning with like the call for Arizona from Fox News, um, the group just grew smaller and smaller and smaller. But talking to administration officials and, and White House officials, now most of them now former at this point, although some of them are still in their jobs in the administration and, and are there until at least Friday um, in some cases, they they kind of there was sort of um, a strange like, oh shit, after January 6th, where a lot of people seem to genuinely wake up for the first time to a lot of the ugliness that they had thought was like a media invention or thought was just something that, that the media was overly dramatic about previously like I talked to one administration official who was saying like I'm I'm paraphrasing what the person said but it was like oh I used to just think like oh he's not a fascist he's not a wannabe dictator like that's that's just a media hype Uh, but now there's nothing really to say in response to that like I guess he was all of those things Um, and then a lot of people that I talk to are they kind of sound like they're emerging from a from a cult and in some ways they are we're like they on the one hand want to kind of deny that they were a part of this or that like it was as bad as it looked and then on the other hand it's all that they want to talk about because they're trying to process it and they kind of are almost like I think of, of that scene in Austin Powers when he's like emerges from the cryogenic freezer mm. and he's like being defrosted and he wakes up but it's like 2001 or whatever year it is um that's kind of what it is like for some of these officials or former officials that I talked to where they're just like, oh shit, like I spent four years sort of in this bunker. Um, and now I um I have to figure out what what that meant and what that says about me. Perhaps the highest profile of those administration officials were Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. And I think there was an assumption throughout much of the Trump presidency, despite its unpopularity that Jared and Ivanka would elevate their platform and eventually return to the upper echelons of society where they would be welcomed with open open arms. There was a pretty radical change in that assumption after the Capitol riot on January 6th. It was entirely predictable that something like that would happen, I think, just knowing Trump and the way he reacts to uh, election losses. Um, But it does really feel like it left an indelible stain on the Trump name. What do you think the future holds for Jared and Ivanka? Do you think that they fear that they will not be able to rejoin the high society that they left when they joined the Trump administration? Everything that we know about them and everything that 
I've learned about them through my reporting suggested they are completely preoccupied with that question. And they have always been preoccupied with how they're perceived among the kind of elite society set um, that they've always wanted to be welcomed by. And in that sense, they're really no different from Donald Trump, who, despite what he says, uh, despite how he behaves, has always been obsessed with and preoccupied by whether or not he's accepted by New York society and, and the New York media. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about Katie Rogers, who's, um, I think, one of the best writers um, on on Trump and Trump society uh, for the New York Times. She did a piece for Town and Country um, last week where Tina Brown is quoted as saying, and I'm paraphrasing, that in in New York society or in you know elite society, you're really never going to be shunned unless you lose your money or go to jail. <laughs> and I think that's probably I think that's Spot probably on. the case. Yeah. yeah, like I think um, <laughs> I think that if we and by we I just mean like a society in general have been able to welcome onto the airwaves or welcome into our dinner parties. Um, apologists for the Iraq war, someone like Ari Fleischer. (laughs) Um, Mm. I I don't know that I, I think that memories are are long enough um, to. It's the George Bush going on Ellen syndrome. Totally. And like, look is, I I think it's become, um, I have certainly seen on the left, a lot of commentary and it was more popular after the election, but before January 6th about how, um, in the end, George W. Bush was a, a way worse president than than Donald Trump was. Um, but I, I don't know if I think that I think in the immediate term, January sixth makes it. I think, as you were saying, impossible for the kind of typical revolving door with cable contracts and and all of that to happen. But I think in the um, I mean, I've talked to White House officials or former White House officials or former Trump campaign officials just in the last couple of weeks. I was talking to someone last weekend who was saying immediately it's impossible. I'm not going to get hired by uh, a CNN or MSNBC as a commentator, but maybe nine months from now, I'll be able to do that. And I, I, I don't think that that is incorrect. That actually sounds spot on. So Eric Trump is obviously running the Trump organization. Ivanka and Don Jr. seem to have gotten a little bit more into politics. Do you think now that they're moving down to Florida that they have a future in Republican politics? Well, I think that it is likely that they will try. Um, and I I think that's just human nature. You go where you are loved. Um, you go where you're accepted. You go where you will be applauded. Um, and if you are a Trump, the likeliest place to find that is on the right. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised, and it, and it makes perfect sense that time in a bunker um, makes you more extreme in your views or makes you more sympathetic to people who, you know, maybe Ivanka went into the White House with sort of a centrist establishment, center-right views, um, and maybe she leaves super sympathetic to the far right because they're the people who were defending her 
right? Um, or the people who were accepting her. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if any of the Trump kids or the Trump in-laws ran for office. Um, I'm sort of expecting Laura Trump to run in North Carolina almost as a, a Trump kid trial balloon more than anybody else. Um, but I don't know. Um, I, it's not that I think Trumpism disappears overnight um, on the right. But I do wonder um, if any lessons were learned from the party at large and the party establishment and, and how intense the desire will be to prevent something like this from happening again. Uh, and like, what kind of roadblocks might be constructed um, before another Trump candidacy, even if it's uh, one of his spawn um, by the party uh, to, to prevent them being you know, just consuming the entire right again, because I, I don't think I haven't talked to anyone who's like a longtime Republican, even people who bit their tongues and put their heads down for the last four years, who thought it was like good for the party. Your reporting during the Trump era focused a lot on the historically weird cast of characters that drifted in and around the White House. A recent dispatch took a look at the pillows hawked by my pillow CEO Mike Lindell, who is <laughs> somehow in the news uh, hourly now. Um, <laughs> and you, you also had uh, a very good report on a lunch you had with a Bloody Mary soaked Rudy Giuliani. Do you have a favorite Trump world crony? Oh man. Um, hmm. That's such a hard question. There are so many. I feel like they're all my children. Um, <laughs> do I have a favorite? I I think at the end of the day, I'd have to say my favorite is Sam Dunberg because he was the first. He's a, um, he's a deep cut. He's a deep cut. He was the first. Um, and there is an honesty to him uh, and a self-awareness that is unusual um, in the Trump orbit. And he he's a great character and like a great, good for a quote, right? And, but he's also a, a complicated person who is not just, he's not Corey Lewandowski, I mean, they hate each other, but he's not Corey Lewandowski in that he's not just like, he's not evil. He's not just like mm. a bad, bad person who you should like avoid if you see out in the wild. Um, and so I appreciate that about him. And I've, I always, um, I've never come away from a conversation with Sam Nunberg thinking that it was a waste of time to talk to him because he always has an interesting insight. I will say I'm I'm always delighted when I'm reading a piece that has like 40 anonymous sources in it and you know the bold sam nunberg uh, <laughs> yeah quote, I mean, he's, always yeah, on the record <laughs> always on the record i mean and i appreciate that about him just as a reporter but i also appreciate like you know rudy is always on the record like mm. i don't think i've ever spoken to rudy julian well, he's not speaking to me right now currently but i'm optimistic that that will change but he <laughs> um i don't think i've ever spoken to rudy and have him say like 
you know, off the record this or on background that like he just is Rudy and he's on the record and like he's going to say the same shit to you as he'll say on his radio show or on Newsmax or whatever. Um, And I really appreciate that. The thing I find so wild about Rudy Giuliani is I think a lot of people are baffled about why he is doing what he is doing right now, because, you know, he had a pretty global, venerable reputation thanks to his response to 9-11. And you interviewed him once, I think it was last year, and you asked him about his reputation and what he thinks of it, and I believe his response was, fuck it. Um, He said, "Um, my opinion on my legacy is fuck it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like, okay, fair. But I kind of want to know, and you would have a better sense of this because you've interviewed him, you've spoken to him, you have sources that are close to him. Do you have any idea what drives him at this point? I really don't. Um, I mean, I could take a guess and say a desire to remain relevant, um, a an increasingly paranoid worldview, um, mm-hmm. and a desire to make money. Mm. Um, but I really don't know. And most people that I talk to who really like Rudy and view what he's doing now and what has become of him in the last several years as like a great tragedy, um, who wish him no ill and, and are not speaking because they're trying to like fuck him over. Um, a lot of people that I talk to are just completely baffled and have absolutely no idea why he would want to destroy the goodwill that he had earned or uh, why he would want to kind of have his final act uh, as a public figure be this farce. Um, But he doesn't give a shit. Um, And there's something almost beautiful about that to me. You know, Trump seems to be uh, exceedingly loyal to him despite having problems with his his behavior in public. Yeah, um, I mean, look, Trump likes New Yorkers. Mm. Trump likes people who are familiar. He is an old man. He is a creature of habit. Um, but he also remembers who stuck by him the weekend of the Access Hollywood tape. And Rudy was out on TV spinning for him. He was encouraging him to stay in it. He did not tell him that he had to drop out, that he was going to lose in a landslide. And that made all the difference. That's what made Rudy Rudy in the Trump orbit and what made Chris Christie Chris Christie. I mean, obviously, Chris Christie also jailed Jared Kushner's father, and that did not help him. Um, but, But that made all the difference. And I think you know, so much of the dynamics of the last four years of, of the, the Trump administration, you can trace back to these very, very early fractures where if you want to understand what was happening, you really had to understand the first split on the Trump campaign between Sam Numberg, Roger Stone, and Corey Lewandowski. You know, you couldn't really grasp the infighting and the regime changes Um, that followed in the Trump era if you didn't understand that first uh, fight. And similarly, you couldn't, you can't really explain um, Trump's paranoia and his obsession with loyalty um, 
and why he chooses to have certain people around him, despite them always making things worse. Uh, if you don't understand that Excess Hollywood weekend and its significance in Trump's mind. And it, it really was that it was, uh, if I recall correctly, it was Chris Christie was uh, basically telling, did he, was he telling Trump to drop out, I believe? And, and yeah, it was Chris Giuliani, Christie. Yeah. And the RNC. So it was mm. Chris Christie, Reince Priebus, um, the, the establishment around him who, you know, had who always hated him, who didn't want him to win the nomination. Um, those people were never able to really recover in Trump's eyes. And like you saw what happened to them in the White House, like someone like Reince Priebus left that place in pieces <laughs> um, with, you know, just like. I think he was survived been... by Omarosa. Yeah, I I think he actually was. Um, And it just, um, yeah, like Trump is, it's incredible that he's not Italian, like between his speaking style and also his capacity for um, bitterness and uh, and grudges. Yeah, yeah. Now, (laughs) you, you are the, obviously the Washington correspondent for New York Magazine. Does that mean your focus is going to shift now from Trump to the new Biden administration? Well, I mean, as much as I would love to spend like half the year in Palm Beach covering Trump, you know, yeah, the post-presidency, I'm fascinated by it. And I'm fascinated by, um, you know, what will become of him. And I cannot wait in like six months or whatever to do a profile of Trump in winter. Like, I think um, that'll be great from my perspective it's a story um but uh yeah i am the washington correspondent and i've covered the you know i covered the democratic primary a bit um and I, I covered biden a bit uh and i will be covering this white house but i i'm always going to be interested in trump and I, it's not as though i think that this story just ended yesterday and his effects on the party i think um will continue to to kind of reverberate over the next four years at least. And I think the question is kind of like, is he more of a Sarah Palin type of figure where he fades into the background and we stop caring after a while? Maybe he emerges every once in a while, but um, but he stops having an active effect on the party. Um, or is it something different where, uh, where he continues to define um, what the, the quote unquote base cares about? I don't know. There's an interesting dynamic that I think is always worth following in media, and that is when public figures stop becoming interesting to readers. Uh, You know, I can remember the day when our readers at least stopped caring about Steve Bannon um, after he was uh, jettisoned from the White House. And I do wonder sometimes if Trump, when he's out of power, will have whether that effect will apply to him or whether he will always remain this immense fixation of the media. One thing that is for sure, though, is that Biden promises to be a lot more boring than Trump, uh, which in many ways is better for the country, um, but it will certainly make for less wild news cycles. Do you think that you will miss the Trump era? Um, I mean, cynically, as a reporter, Mm. you're always going to miss a great story. And there certainly in my lifetime has never been a better story. Um, so I'm sure in that sense, I will kind of, I'll look back with nostalgia. I, I kind of already am on uh, 
this embarrassment of riches that we had in terms of material. Um, and of course, you can't say that without uh, the resistance and the left being like flipping out and, <laughs> and being angry. But like reporters love a great story. This was fucking incredible um, yeah. from that perspective. Um, but I think, you know, re reporters are always biased towards conflict. And there are, it's not as though the Biden administration or the Biden transition or the Biden campaign um, is going to be free of drama and free of, um, you know, personnel driven chaos just because it's not like literally a season of Apprentice. <laughs> um, I mean, I found that reporting on his campaign, um, that, but that exists anywhere, you know, anywhere that you have, um, I think anywhere that your workplace is kind of defined by a super famous, super powerful principle, um, whether that's like a tech company and it's the CEO or it's the White House uh, and the presidency of the United States, um, that's going to be the case. So that's not to say that I think the only interesting way that you could cover something is through palace intrigue. But um, I think as with most things with Trump, it was just sort of like a heightened uh, extreme version of the dynamics that like already exist in our politics and, and have always been the case. And, and, you know, I do think that the thing about the Trump era is that a lot of those stories ended up not being particularly meaningful. Like you'd have sort of a Trump outrage that would happen on Monday. And if you read the news on the weekend, it would not have made it um, just because it was unimportant. It was him yeah. lashing out about something and then not uh, applying any yeah. policy towards it. Whereas I, I expect a Biden administration to have some more meaningful scandals. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, but I think that with Trump, a lot of the stories that, um, that emerged about him being angry or him wanting to get rid of somebody or him wanting to do something or not wanting to do something. A lot of it stemmed from uh, like fundamental misunderstandings or misreadings of his personality. And a lot of the times when there would be some kind of persistent story about, let's say Trump wanted to like send Jared and Ivanka back to New York. Like that was something that kept emerging throughout the administration. Um, and I remember talking to a White House official about that and them saying like, yeah, well, when you first get here and Trump looks at you and he says like, oh, my babies, they're killing my babies. Maybe it would just be better to, to send send them home, send them back to New York. Like, you're like, is that an order from the president? Like, should I be executing on this? And then you realize like, no, he just spitballs like that. Like, that's how he talks and it doesn't mean anything. And it doesn't mean that you have to do anything. You just have to like pretend that you care and then change the subject. Um, and so a lot of the leaks would come from people being like, well, uh, you know, Trump said, we're going to fire his ass and, you know, pointed at the TV when he saw, uh, you know, John Kelly, getting out of his car and walking into the West Wing. Um, so I guess he's going to fire John Kelly today. It's like, no, he's just, he just talks and he it's just very does. rarely serious. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I can imagine Biden's going to be a little bit more um, disciplined perhaps in, in his yeah, comments. Yeah, he's quieter. To, to junior aides. Um, <laughs> he's quieter. But I, you know, I suppose like characters like Hunter Biden might provide some interesting moments, um, who, by the way, is underrated as a style icon. 
Um, <laughs> he's really he's very stylish and i really like his paintings too but i also like george w bush's paintings so it's not a it's not a partisan it's, thing it's just it's just po political paintings in general yeah you're, you're fond I, of that genre. maybe yeah. yeah no i do i just this is a complete side note but i just uh, there was that new york times profile that came out of him two years ago where he's like living in like a bungalow on Mulholland yes. Drive. That was not two years ago. That was like six months ago. <laughs> oh Christ! Yeah, my my concept of time has been shattered. But yeah, he yeah, I'm 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 fond of him. I, I do hope that he maintains some sort of presence, if it's not just showing off his artwork at like Sotheby's or something. Yeah, but look, I I don't think that just like tragic, chaotic characters are the only stories that are interesting. Mm -hmm. Like I think it it is inherently fascinating. Um, who is occupying the White House right now, a man who has wanted to be president for probably like, what, 67 years, like 70 years. Like it probably first yeah. occurred to him as a pretty small boy to be president. And I think he first ran in 1988. Yeah, right. And and when that possesses you, that thought that you could do that and that you should do that, um, it it doesn't seem to ever go away. And that is fascinating to me. And Kamala Harris is fascinating. And there are members of, uh, you know, uh, people to judge is fascinating. And just the question of how do you quote unquote return to normalcy? I hate people saying that, um, you know, that it's everything's going to suddenly be normal again. Um, and maybe that's because I don't know what that would mean because I never covered a quote unquote normal administration. Um, sure. But, and I, I feel kind of like a, like a feral child. It's like I was raised by wolves covering Trump and now I'm going to have to like learn how to sit at a dinner table or something. In the house. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> but I, I think it's fascinating the story of like, how do you how does the dust settle on this era and like mm. what can joe biden actually accomplish in terms of uniting people and how much does it matter that his his perception of what he is capable of in terms of working across the aisle and his his being empathetic seems to kind of distort for him uh, what he thinks other people are capable of in terms of doing the right thing. Uh, you know, if to hear him talk about gun control and Mitch McConnell, it's like, wow, this man really believes that he will be able to convince, he's going um, to be able to convince another old man to completely change his personality against all common sense and, and all history of, of what is, what is in the name of exactly unity. like that to me is fascinating. Like this guy from a completely, from a totally different era um, with a, with a very old fashioned sort of simplistic worldview um, assuming this position. And uh, despite everyone in the the discourse and the conversation disliking him right like he he was the least popular online candidate and I, I, a lot of it is fascinating to me and it's not just fascinating because it's like new and so different from trump um I think you could find fascinating characters anywhere and like if i'm looking forward to any aspect of like being robbed of all of the crazy Trump characters and not not having occasion to write about them anymore. It's that like we get to kind of be creative again and think mm -hmm. hard about um, 
people who are not so obviously flamboyantly insane. Um, and that sounds interesting to me. And like, I'm not, um, in, in the one sense, I kind of am probably due to like uh, Stockholm syndrome, like mourning the end of this era. Um, but in another sense, I'm like extremely excited about um, having more nuanced, uh, slower <laughs> news cycles where yeah, we Yeah, can... I think there's slower news cycles. There's still fascinating narratives there. So yeah, able to sort of yeah absorb them a little bit more slowly, and and to as you say to not have the sort of the insanity be so you know on the surface. Um, you know, it's almost harder to write about like totally Mike yeah. Mandel trying to lead a, <laughs> yeah. you know, a martial a law coup. crackdown. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I always say this for like I thought um, I only had I had a very short period of time prior to the Trump administration as a reporter. Like mm -hmm. this was the first um, it was the first campaign I covered was Trump, um, and so it's not like I had uh, I had been like on the Romney plane and like gotten gotten experience that way and then covered the 2016 race. Um, but I thought if I had a skill prior to the Trump era, it was to find like the interesting characters on the periphery and like find a way to tell a story about uh, something happening in our politics through them. And with Trump, it was like the crazy fringe characters were running the asylum. And mm -hmm. so there was no opportunity to do that. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of excited about being able to diversify what it is and who it is that we focus on, uh, where we're not all going to be writing about the My Pillow guy. It's competitive. Next week, everyone is on the Mike Lindell beat. That's that. It's I competitive think. and it's also boring and repetitive, yes, right? True. Yeah. But so you attended the Biden inauguration yesterday. Mm -hmm. What what was that like after four years of Trump's DC? I can't believe it was yesterday. First of all, it feels already <laughs> like it was a week ago. Um, I. It was, I kind of, um, I'm, I think I'm a fairly cynical and like unsentimental person um, when it comes to my view of Washington. Um, and I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm more likely to like roll my eyes at a speech than I am to like cheer up, you know? <laughs> um, but there was undeniably, something pretty awe-inspiring about being at that spot where exactly mm -hmm. two weeks earlier uh, the insurrection had occurred and five people had died and a police officer had been murdered um, and this assault on our democracy occurred and then being there for this um, bizarre like political family reunion that, that occurs during any inauguration. Um, and I, I, there was a point where like, you know, I was looking around and we were, um, it was during one of the prayers and I looked up and I saw um, Mitt Romney praying and he had his like hands clasped and he looked to the extent that I could see it with his mask on. Like he looked like he had a pretty like serene, peaceful expression on his face. Um, and then I looked over and like, I saw Mike Pence, in the other direction and and he had his hands clasped the same way and was praying. I looked over to the side and there was John Ossoff a few uh, chairs from me. 
praying. And then I looked over my shoulder and it was like Paul Ryan and Jim Jordan <laughs> bowed in prayer. And I was just like, what a fucking strange place to be. First of all, that we're all, we're all here, all of these characters. It's like the end of Goodfellas or something. And <laughs> Layla like, outro plays. <laughs> exactly. I feel like Layla is really getting a workout this week. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, I don't, there was something extraordinarily strange, but also frankly beautiful about it and I think the fact that we were all socially distanced obviously and we all had masks on it kind of forced everyone to be more um contained than you would normally be at a big event like that uh you know normally you would you would be kind of chit-chatting with each other you'd be doing a lot of interviews um the speeches and uh songs would be peppered with uh conversation with whoever you're sitting next to but instead you're sort of in your own little universe watching it and um for me I think I spent a lot more time listening and absorbing um than I than I ordinarily do at events and it, there was something on the one hand I've like recoil and discuss at, discussed at how um religious these ceremonies tend to be and in, in overt ways and in more subtle ways um just as, as someone who you know cares about the separation of church and state um both in in literal ways and kind of these uh odd subliminal ways that that we trample on that in our pageantry um but on the other hand there was something sort of genuinely strangely healing about being there as much as I hate to admit that <laughs> <laughs> well it's it, it's I feel like it's a good as day as any to put aside a little bit of cynicism um, yeah I mean I want to die get, having just get, said that but, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's I think it's fine to get caught up in it uh, <laughs> I, I have I have just one last question um there's always conversation and reporting when uh, administrations change about DC changing radically like the social mm -hmm. scene in dc i think i've read uh, uh, i'm sure there are politico stories about like the dating scene getting radically altered when uh trump came to town and it became like a maga dating scene <laughs> um now like it does seem like the sort of maga community is leaving dc do you think that the trump international hotel is still going to be a place to get reporting action or are you pretty much writing it off as uh, as a future destination. I mean, I have been avoiding that hotel like the literal plague since the plague hit because I don't want to get the coronavirus and Smart. and die. That is and ground I feel like zero just, for sure. Yeah, for and I COVID just feel bombs. like I just feel like if I'm going to get it and die anywhere, like I'm definitely going to get it covering Trump or being at the Trump Hotel. And I'm frankly shocked that like Rudy Giuliani did not give me coronavirus <laughs> at any point because um, that would have just been narratively the way that I go. Um, but would have made a great piece. But yeah, it would have been uh, someone someone would have like written a good obit and then I would have been <laughs> forgot, forgotten the next day. Um, um, but I. I don't know the you my like um spidey sense when you said that was just like oh that's a great idea to do a story about in like a couple weeks like I should go there and sit in the lobby all day and see what what that yields um yeah so get but, a couple high fives from Roger Stone and... yeah exactly um that fucking guy but I um <laughs> I 
I don't know. I mean, I think that it will be interesting to see, I guess, how much, um, but how much that culture continues because there are going to be refugees from the administration with consulting jobs and um, lobbying jobs in DC for the foreseeable future. Um, it's not as though every MAGA pop politician it has exited Washington. There are still the, the Matt Gateses and Jim Jordans and, and Rand Pauls of the world and their underlings uh, live here. And uh, so it will, it will continue for that reason. But um, I guess it'll be interesting once, um, once the vaccine is, is more widely available and social life resumes a bit um, to see how different how different things are in DC, because as you noted, uh, in all of those many, many stories about um, elite Washington and dinner parties and who is dating who, um, there was always this kind of divide where like permanent elite Washington looked down very much on the Trump people and didn't want to invite them to, to the salons and, and didn't include them. Um, and then there was like the Trump hotel and the kind of debauchery at, at the cigar bars in town or whatever. Um, and I guess it'll be interesting to see how, um, sorry if this is not a fully, a fully formed thought, but like, I, I think that one of the good things about the Trump era was that it, um, it kind of revealed the like grossness and ugliness in a lot of the traditions and norms in Washington that I think ordinarily would not, um, we would not have looked hard at or we would not have questioned. And it's like, yeah, we probably shouldn't be going to the White House Christmas party as reporters, or we shouldn't be posing for photos with our subjects. Like that is gross and it's gross no matter who it is. Um, and we should do it. And if Trump is what revealed that, then like, great. So be it, I hope we we reform our behaviors in the future. But I, I am curious, like, will the kind of incestuous um, relationships that are the norm here, will they resume um, and, and will things continue apace as they had been in the pre-Trump era uh, when it was not like a cancelable offense to be out to dinner uh, with someone from the administration? We'll find that out at the next White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yeah, I look forward to, uh, you know, testing out the, the cancelable offenses and <laughs> seeing what happens. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Olivia Nutzi on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.